This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Women Bar Association, Women's Bar Association uh, book party for Judge Nancy Gertner. Um, we're happy to see you all here tonight. I'm Andrea Kramer, the president-elect of the Women's Bar Association. And uh, we just want to thank our sponsors, Key Discovery, uh, Sullivan Global Research, and Suffolk Law School, which was so generous in hosting us tonight, um, and especially uh, Gail Ellis, the dean of, admissions. dean of admissions here. So thank you uh, to Gail. Um, I'm going to leave the introductions to Pam Berman, who coordinated this along with the new lawyers committee and the senior practice group, not to be confused with senior women. And, um, and so she will take that. Um, for anybody here who's not a member, I want to encourage you to please sign up before you leave to, um, or go to our website tomorrow. The organization is only as strong as its members, and we have a lot more effect if we could say to people that we have 2,500 members instead of 1,500 members. I see Kristen sitting over there. She does lobbying for us. And if she can go up to the State House and say we have 5,000 members, that would be even better. Um, it's also better for networking and helping us all to uh, be more empowered. And on that note, I'm just going to read one small part of Judge Gertner's book. <laughs> A special shout-out to us. She was talking about a Supreme Court case, and she said, We garner help from women's organizations all over the state. This would not be simply a case. It would be a mobilization. Women lawyers of my generation had just formed the Women's Bar Association, <laughs> hoping it would be more politically active than the traditional women's bar groups. It was not just about networking and cocktail parties. It was about abortion and equal rights. So the WBA's very first amicus curiae, friend of the court brief, was in support of our position, claiming it was re required by the state equal rights amendment. And we still have an active amicus committee. I saw Jen Hatch, the chair of it here. So with that, I will turn it over to Pam. Thank you very, very much, Thank Judge you. Gertner, for Thank being you. here. And Pam for coordinating for Pam. all of it. <laughs> yes, for being Pam. <laughs> Well, thank you. That was Andrea Kramer, the president-elect of the Women's Bar Association. Um, it's my honor to introduce our guest of honor, Judge Nancy Gertner. She's the, for those of you in the room, you probably all know, she's the U.S. District Judge for the District of Massachusetts. We're being webcast, just in case you wanted to know, um, which means when it comes time to ask questions, we're going to be passing a microphone around so that your questions are also webcast. Um, and can be heard by those who are listening via the web. Um, and they may not know how famous Judge Gertner is and how well we know her. Um, she was appointed by President Clinton back in 1994, which doesn't seem that long ago, really. Um, she's a graduate of Bernard College and Yale Law School, where she served on the Yale Law Journal. She plans, very sadly to many of us, to retire from the bench in September of 2011 to become part of the faculty at Harvard Law School. Um, some of us are seeing as this little bit of a silver lining in that cloud that we can't wait to see what she does next. <laughs> <laughs> she's received many, many honors. Um, she's listed in the best lawyers of America since its inception under the criminal law and labor law categories. She's a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. She's a lifetime honorary member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And she's the recipient of many, many other awards. To understand how she's achieved so much, um, and I didn't understand how she actually achieved so much until I began to read her book, which I found, she sent it to me one day as I was under a time deadline, as I often am procrastinating as usual writing a brief at the last moment, and her book arrived on my desk. And I opened it just because I was curious, and I couldn't put it down. And um, it's fascinating. And for those of you who haven't yet gotten your copy, do get it, because it is one of the best and fastest reads 
you'll ever find. Um, but let's start back at the beginning to find out how this person is this incredible person she's become. Um, tell us about how it all began on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Nancy. Well, I was born. Yes. <laughs> Thank <Sorry>. goodness. How <laughs> far back to you? Um, well, I, I, I describe in the book that I, when people start from where you are now, they assume a number of things. They assume, you know, an elite education, and I suppose that was true. They assume parental support. This was not true. They assume money. This was not true. And so what I write about is that I was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, we, I slept in a crib until I was eight. There might be some psychological issue about that <laughs> that I'm missing. There wasn't enough room for another bed in the, in the apartment that we had. I had an older sister who was three and a half years older than me. My parents were born in this country, but just barely. Um, they were born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was then a very insular Jewish community. Um, their parents, uh, their grandparents had just come to this country. So although they were born in this country, they never left a, about a five-block area of, of uh, Manhattan. And my father didn't know what to do with girls. Uh, he would, uh, he, he had, it, had in mind what he would have done if he had boys, but he didn't know what to do with girls. My sister was told to take the commercial course in high school because the academic course would be wasted on a, on a girl. Uh, I had, the book is filled with what I describe as moishisms, which is the things that my father and mother would say to me. Uh, when I got into Yale Law School, should be, you know, a moment of joy for most people. My mother told me that I had now priced myself out of the male market. <laughs> uh, you know, and that, so it, it, goes, it goes on and on and on. And when I finally... Uh, so he, they, they didn't know much what to do with me, um, didn't know much how to support me. But I also describe, and I think many of us probably have this, this in their backgrounds, there are ways in which a parent can, can say one thing out loud and, say, and do something totally different. So my, there are stories of my father and me fighting um, uh, after the, the news. Was, there's a program called the 11th Hour News in New York. And we would fight until 2 or 3 in the morning about then China's admission to the UN, about feminism, about the, the, the war, the, uh, the Vietnamese war. And what that communicated to me was, not what he said, but what he did was that I was someone of importance. My ideas mattered to him, and he was engaged with them. In fact, when he died, there was a stack of clippings by the side of his bed, which was every time my name had been mentioned anywhere. Um, my mother had died when I was 30, and in her honor, I told a story, I've told this 7,000 times. I think this is the last time I'm going to tell the story. This is in the book. Some of you may already be smiling. It's a very funny story. I graduate Yale. I'm going to do it fast. I graduate Yale Law School, um, and uh, my mother and I have a fight. It's the, as I describe in the book, it's the kind of fight that only mothers and daughters have. You know, you say things to her you would never say to another human being. <laughs> you know, and we are going on and on and on. What are we fighting about? Sadie, my mother, wants me to take the Triborough Bridge toll takers test just in case. <laughs> you never know. And I could not get her to understand that I was on a different track. And in fact, when I was sworn in as a judge, I told that story because it made sense to tell it. And at the end of the story, I looked up at the ceiling and I said, excuse me, I have to talk to my mother now. And I said, ma, a government job. <laughs> so so it, was, it was not, I mean, it was a family. I also, I, there's a chapter in here which I don't often talk about, but to this audience I will. You know, I mean, I resisted... Um, being like my mother for the longest time. The, 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 it, they, she pushed me out of the kitchen, uh, you know, didn't want me to do anything in the kitchen, and as I said, my father engaged me in politics. But then I described, um, uh, after she died, um, and I was determined, I was actually determined not to marry and determined not to have kids. And uh, I tell a story about how my father was failing, and I'm flying in from Europe, and I suddenly feel deeply, deeply lonely um, that one day he won't be there for me, and what exactly was I 
doing with my life. And this also coincided with the biological clock ringing right off the hook. <laughs> um, and I, this, so there's a chapter in which I said, you know, I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to babysit. But the one thing I got from this family is I knew how to love. I knew how to love and make brisket at 2 in the morning. This was, <laughs> somehow she meant, I think that that comes through the pores, you know, <laughs> brisket. So, um, uh, so the, book is, the book talks about where I came from and the, the resistance that I felt from my family, which was a complicated resistance. They gave with one hand and held back um, with another. I, by the time I was, um, three days before I was, President Clinton called me to nominate me for the judgeship, my father died. And so I describe um, what that all felt like. My father was completely mystified by my career. And when I was up for a judgeship, he sat in my office going through the letters of support. And he would look up and he'd say, you're going to go through the state legislature, right? I said, no, 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 Dad, I'm going to Washington. You're, not, you're talking about the Massachusetts legislature. I said, no, Dad, no, Dad, the Senate. Then he looked up in the way that he did and said, you mean the Anita Hill Senate? I said, you got it, <laughs> the Anita Hill Senate. That's where I'm going. Uh, and then after all of this struggle, again, this would have been months before he died, he looked up at me with tears in his eyes and said, I'm proud of you, which, of course, is the moment that every kid wants to have. So I could go on and on. <laughs> Do interrupt at any time. <laughs> Well, going back, um, it, one of the things I found interesting, the, the book actually starts with your description of, as a very, very young lawyer, um, I think two years, I think you said, into your career or so. Three. Um, you get a call from a, a lawyer in Philadelphia, I believe, and they're asking you to take what is represented to you as a very tiny role in a case representing Susan Sachs. Um, tell us a little bit about this, the Susan Sachs case, which I found absolutely spellbinding. The, the, the chapter begins when I was 29 and she was 25. Um, I represented Susan Sachs. Uh, just as a little background, Sue, there, there had been a bank robbery of the State Street Bank and Trust Company. In the mid-'70s, the anti-war movement went, became violent. Not all aspects of it, but there was... There were some who were doing bombings and people who were doing robbers. So she was uh, uh, supposedly part, I, I, can't, I, can't, I have to say supposedly, she pled guilty. I can't even get the words out of my mouth. <laughs> Five people robbed a bank. Two were women, three were men. The two women were Brandeis seniors, which was very shocking to people. The three men were described as ex-cons. The way it worked was that there'd be three people in the bank one woman would be guarding the getaway in a switch car, and then one man was watching the bank to make sure that no one went inside. The robbery was intended to get money for the anti-war movement. Sachs had actually robbed their other banks that had been robbed, again, to get money for the anti-war movement. Um, the, the robbery takes place. The three in the bank leave. The man in the front doesn't see them leave. A police officer comes up onto the sidewalk, and the man in the front, his name was Gil Day, shot the officer in the back. Sachs and the other two men in the bank and Kathy Power, who's the other woman in the getaway car, don't even know that anyone is killed until they're on their way back. Um, but because an officer had, because any person had been killed during the course of a robbery, suddenly the five of them now were charged with first-degree murder. Um, Sachs went underground immediately. The, the three men were caught immediately and uh, prosecuted uh, and convicted. Sachs goes underground, as does Power. And it was in one of the interesting ironies of the book, the FBI could not find Sachs or Power because they didn't know where women go. <laughs> it was extraordinary. They had no idea. They were looking in Las Vegas, you know, strip joints and... Uh, you know, where that they were looking at all the wrong places. This was a woman's underground. They were working in natural food stores. They were working <laughs> in daycare centers. The FBI was mystified. Um, and so she was able to stay underground for five years. Kathy Power stayed underground for 20 years. Didn't surface until about 10 years ago. Um, so 
I knew about the case. I was a lawyer for three years. She asked me how many years I had been in practice. I rounded off three to the nearest ten. <laughs> she asked me how many trials I had done. I rounded off perhaps two to the nearest ten. Um, and I, uh, and she wanted a woman to represent her. I have to step back and say, I mean, this was extraordinary. There were no women in the courtroom. There were no women judges. There were not even women clerks in the courtroom. There were simply no women in the courtroom at all, and there were surely no women criminal defense lawyers. So when someone asked me to represent her and, she, and wanted a woman lawyer, I was flabbergasted. Um, she figured, now it wasn't a compliment. I want to believe it was a great compliment. It was a great compliment. She figured her life was over. Uh, she would go away to jail for the rest of her life. There seemed to be no defenses. The men had been caught immediately. And so in her brief moment on the stage, she wanted to have, share it with, she wanted to be represented by a woman. She wanted to have the courtroom reflect her values, which was extraordinarily brave of her, one would think. I, um, I couldn't turn her down. I write in the book, and I think some of the, uh, some of the women in, the court in here might understand, we all were walking around feeling like we were representatives of our generation. You know, if you, if you failed, you felt you failed for everybody because every one of us was a model of all of us, and particularly in criminal law. I, I could not say what was in my heart, which is, I do not know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't say that to her. I couldn't admit it. Um, and so I said yes um, and represented her. So I, it, was, it was more that I just didn't know how to say no than that I thought, gee, I was fabulous for the case. The only thing good about that, and then again, this is another woman's story, two things that come out. The, the Sachs chapter is, a, uh, is actually three chapters. Two things. One, because I had no mentors. I had no mentors. I had to invent the whole thing. And inventing the whole thing also meant that I learned to be creative as a lawyer. I, learned, I, I read about social psychology in order to select the jury. Um, I read about uh, uh, a theater to figure out how I was going to walk around a courtroom, what were the most effective ways I could be. In, in a certain sense, I had no, oh, this is how you always do it, and I had no one telling me what to do, so I essentially invented it. The other aspect was that because there were no women around, I was just dramatically underestimated, dramatically underestimated. And I could get away with things because no one quite expected anyone uh, you know, who uh, looked as young as I did at the time, who was in fact as young as I did, who was as inexperienced as I would, could possibly know what she's doing. Now at the beginning, I can't say that I did, but it took two years to try the case. By the end, I knew what I was doing. Um, but uh, there was not just the, did you know what you're doing? One of the things that I write about is that the worst part about discrimination is that if you, it, it matches your sense of insecurity. When someone comes up to you and says, I don't believe a woman should do that, I would say, oh, of course I can. But the, deep, the voice inside me would say, God knows, what am I doing? <laughs> and I would be getting the, why are you taking, every time I, I, I've, kept notes about this. Every time I'd be walking down the street, the male lawyers, big lawyers in town would come up to me and say, literally, hey, honey, you're in over your head. I've written their names down. <laughs> I did. I kept a file that I called sexist tidbits. I had to decide as a judge whether I needed to recuse myself when they appeared in front of me. And I decided I didn't. You know? But I remember. You know, and so you, you were getting these kinds of uh, statements of illegitimacy, which matched your own feelings of profound uh, illegitimacy. So the book is a lot about the talking to myself to get myself to feel confident. It didn't come uh, naturally. The men, people, men were saying this to me. The judge kept on making cracks during the course of a murder trial, and the prosecutor was trash-talking. I would walk into court with a dress that made me look pregnant. And he would say to me, how dare you look like that when you're representing that lesbian? 
It's a quote. I would just, and you would have to note it and go on and figure out what to do. The day before the trial started, there was a headline in the Boston Globe. Sachs trial begins tomorrow. Prosecutor able, comma, tough. Period. <laughs> I was a potted plant. And when they asked John Gaffney, who was the prosecutor, how many cases have you tried against Nancy Gertner? He said, oh, has she tried any? Not many, indeed. <laughs> uh, but I, so you were, you were doing this in the face of being the only woman there, and in the, fence, in the face of a small voice inside of you saying, where do I have a right to be a woman criminal defense lawyer when a woman's life, when, it, when a defendant's life is on the line? I am making this statement for all of women, but oh my God, how do I have the right to do this um, when her life is at stake? Well, we won. That's how we had a right to do it. <laughs> how did you gain the confidence to do it? I mean, how, how, what were you doing? I, I think that's, that's a common, the, the imposter theory, as some people call it, that, that voice inside of you that says, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? Particularly when you have men like Gaffney that you talk about in the book, that the prosecutor throwing it in your face, or even just people giving you slights. How did you overcome it? You know, it, um, as I say in the book, work was my armor, and I think it always is. I knew that I would work harder than anybody in the room, and, and that gave me confidence to be able to, to do the case. The, uh, the three men had, had been prosecuted, so I memorized, I memorized their transcripts. The judge would say, would rule X in the Sachs case, and I say, well, judge, in the case of Gilday, you did something different. Um, I memorized the law. I, I, I just, work was my armor, because I knew that I was, that Gaffney wasn't going to do it, and the judge wasn't going to do it, and I knew that that was my power, and to some degree, it actually still is my power, um, that I'm going to take the time to think things through um, more than other people stay up all night. I also don't sleep, but that's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you talk about, I, I think one of the interesting things is, is in the book is the relationship you developed with your client throughout this, this case, which is interesting. I think somewhat unique among many women is, is the relationship they develop with clients. And you don't, I, I haven't in my career seen it with men, is the closeness. Um, talk about about that, which I found very intriguing and, and delightful, actually. Well, sex was one thing. I, this is actually something that is woven throughout the book. As I said, we were only, we were four years apart. Came from very similar backgrounds, although hers was more moneyed than, than my, mine was. We were on the New Haven Green at the same time in 1970. I, as a lawyer doing, there was a demonstration in the New Haven Green and I was the lawyer, I was a legal observer, and Susan was demonstrating. There were, there were so many parallels in our lives, except that the anti-war movement caught her when she was a senior in college and lost. The anti-war movement caught me when I was a lawyer, and I was going to use these skills for uh, social change. Um, so I, I understood, even though I mean, I understood how she came to do what she did, although I didn't agree with it. Um, throughout the book, I describe, the book is called In Defense of Women, but um, there are women's cases, and many of the women's cases representing women, I was really representing myself, right? So not so much with Susan, but the, the woman whose psychiatrist had sex with her. I hadn't had exactly that experience, but... You know, there had been this dentist with the laughing gas, and they're very similar. Or I represented Claire Dalton towards the end of my career, who was denied tenure at Harvard Law School. Or I represented women who had been sexually harassed, and to some degree, they were me. I was, and, and I think, by the way, this goes to Andrea's statement about the Women's Bar Association. I mean, we were representing ourselves. When you went into court on a discrimination case, you were representing the woman next to you, but you were as much representing yourself, which I think animated part of the passion of the, of the case. The book also talks about, I mean, I represented um, men, and the, it's part of the theme of in defense of women in the sense that I'm representing men 
high-profile cases, particularly towards the end, um, when very few women were doing that. So that's how the theme is. But getting you um, bonding with your clients was part of helped me with the help animate what I was doing. And just as a footnote, a couple of weeks ago, my portrait was hung in the federal court. And you know, we you invite fancy members of the bar, but uh, throughout that audience were the people in this book. Uh, I took great pleasure out of making them part of my life, even even as a judge. Um, Susan was not there, but she didn't want to become the story is the reason she wasn't there. One of the things you talk about in your book is outsider consciousness, which I thought was an interesting term. Um, explain what outsider consciousness is as you describe that term in your book. And I talk about myself as outsider consciousness even when you became an insider. Um, that is, you never totally felt like you were inside. Certainly at the beginning, I was an outsider in every respect. Um, but even, even as I began to get the perks of fame to some degree, status, it never completely went away. I have to admit that I feel it to this day, even as a judge. I, I talk about uh, something that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about. Fancy, Supreme Court judge. She writes about conferences with her male counterparts where what she says is not heard unless another man in the room says it. Now, you know, I... Uh, I don't wince in the same way as before, but it's certainly very much of a sense that this territory is not yours yet. This territory, this judging, this uh, profession is not yet yours. And that persisted. In fact, the, 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 book, um, the book was actually very illuminating to write because I began to realize that there are the stories in the beginning of the uh, kind of caricatures that... Um, I was described as. But then there's a story at the end when I am about to go for my confirmation. And by now I have a career, I have a big career, and I have a big name, and I'm married, and I have kids and the whole nine yards. And a week before my confirmation, a Herald article comes out comparing me to Lorena Bobbitt. Judge Gertner will do to justice with her gavel what Lorena did to her husband with a kitchen knife. In other words, I could be reduced to bitch in, in an instant. And it had no idea, no, it, it bore no relation to whom I was. I just, that was just the caricature. And I describe how that, you know, crop, crept up. It, it, it makes the book worthwhile writing because particularly for the younger women in the room, it, you do have to understand that you scratch the surface and the attitudes are still there. And the things that I write about are only 20 and 30 years ago. Um, 1994 was the time of this article. So, you know, you have to be aware that attitudes don't change that quickly, and certainly not in one um, generation. So I actually invite all the women who are of my era to write their stories, um, because I think that it has to be said. One of, one of the um, cases... Well, I was going to ask you to talk about, you went from, in the book, sex, to talking about abortion rights and some of the other things that you did um, for women, which were so interesting, because you, the sex case itself was fascinating, but then you talk about some of the causes you take on, um, and I thought it, many of us do that maybe pro bono, but, but you did it as part of your, uh, your work, whether it paid or not, you did right. it. Um, right, right. Um, tell us how you how you came to decide. I wish more of it had paid. Yeah. At this point in my life, I certainly wish more of it had paid. There's no question. There. Well, um, the Sachs case just, I won the Sachs case. The jury was essentially one vote away from acquittal. And in, there was a mistrial that one person held out. But, um, and then Susan's ultimately, ultimately pled to a lesser charge. But the outcome was so stunning to the press that, of course, had not seen me, didn't believe in anything that I was doing, and thought that I was a real outlier was extraordinary. So essentially, in a year, I went from who the hell is she to 
suddenly being able to pick any case I wanted to take. Um, and so I volunteered with the American Civil Liberties Union uh, Women's Rights Project. WBA was not up and running quite yet. Um, and, you know, I can say this now because I am going to be leaving the bench and I'm sometimes worried about what I said. The abortion issue defined me and our generation, I think. Because the, I was 29 when I represented Susan Sachs. It was terribly important to me that I be able to choose whether to be a mother, when to be a mother, to be sexually active and not have to have children. The, the choices that men could make were the choices that I wanted to make. And the abortion issue, the, right, the right to choose was really central to, to that and to all of us. So I, Roe v. Wade was decided 1972. I don't describe this in the book, but the fact of the matter is I was grocery shopping that day when I saw the headline, I wept. I just wept. We took every abortion case that, we, that, that was coming down the pike in Massachusetts because as soon as Roe v. Wade came down, the, the retrenchment began. And I, um, uh, I, I suppose I would balance the... Well, actually, someone asked me once, how did you do all these free cases? Did you deal drugs? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, there was something like that. <laughs> I did criminal law, and the criminal practice would pay for this. Essentially, I did a Robin Hood practice. I could do the criminal cases. I was by now a, you know, a, a, a good trial lawyer, and so I could take those cases that would essentially pay for the rest. The net is not skillions of dollars, but I had fun, and I felt like I had some meaning in my life. I also happened to meet my husband during all of this. Should I go there? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, I'm doing every abortion case in Massachusetts, every abortion case that there is. Prisoners, Medicaid, and John Reinstein is the uh, lawyer for the ACLU. The first case we did together was against a public hospital that even after Roe v. Wade turned down doing abortions. So we were going to sue the public hospital because Roe v. Wade at that point, we thought, meant public hospitals had to do abortion. So the scene opens up where um, I'm in my car. I have a 5,000-year-old Chevy called Iffy for obvious reasons. <laughs> and I pick him up and because um, uh, we're going to go interview this doctor. And I, I, he says that I asked him if he was married. Not true. <laughs> he got in the car, and I asked him if he was Jewish. <laughs> this, of course, was the same question. <laughs> he was A, married, and B, not Jewish. So we were friends for numbers and numbers of years. Um, and then when his marriage broke up, we started to, to date, and, and then we got married. Um, so it was, and I, as I describe in the book, perhaps it's the only way I could have, because I was a crazy lawyer, crazy worker, still am, and so we wove a family and work together. There's a, there's a scene in there which was a classic when, you know, he's, we're, he, we're eating dinner, and we say, pass the mashed potatoes, and he passes the mashed potatoes, and he says, Ray Richardson just got shot in the back by the police. I see. And I'm doing something else. And then it just goes on. And by the end of the meal, which is described in great detail, I am representing Richardson. And, uh, you know, he's going to do the civil case if I can win the criminal case. Richardson was charged, was shot in the back, but then was charged with uh, uh, assault on a police officer. So we would do the case together. And, and perhaps that's the way I solved the work-family issue. Um, he loved me for me and for what loves me, for me and for what I did. And I loved him the same way. So we could balance the work because we both appreciated what the other was doing. Um, there's a line in the book when my uh, first son was born, when I gave him Miranda warnings. I said, Stephen? No, really, I remember, Stephen, listen. Of course, he's Googling all over the place. Stephen, uh, I, I want you to know that um, there are good news and bad news about having me as a mom. Um, the bad news is I love my work. I love my work. 
uh, and I work very hard at it, and I'll continue. Uh, the good news is that I'll love you to pieces, because I waited such a long time for children. Uh, I had him when I was 39, and as I describe in the book, menopause and birth were neck and neck. <laughs> Happily, I had one at 39 and the other one at 41, and I have a stepdaughter who was eight at the time John and I got together. I don't remember the question now that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I go one more place, and then I want to open it up to questions, because I'm sure people have a lot of questions for you. But I want you to talk a little bit about the Claire Dalton case, which um, I think all of us would like to hear a, a Which bit is about. so ironic, right? I sue Harvard Law School. And now, where are you going? <laughs> I, right. No, I... It, um, uh, so I taught at Harvard for a year, and Claire and I became very good friends. And after I went back to practice, she was denied tenure at Harvard Law School. There were five men and Claire, and the five men got tenure, and she did not. Um, it seemed to me one of the, I, I, at that point... She obviously it, was inferior. Right, she was obviously inferior, right. Um, the, my practice is really bizarre. There were, there were moments in the past, in the 24 years that I was practicing, when I was doing a murder case and a discrimination case at the same time. And just as a footnote, in fact, there was one time that um, while I was representing a woman suing Merrill Lynch, uh, there was a story on the radio that someone had just shot a supervisor at Merrill Lynch. And I called her up and I said, you know, I hope it isn't you, but if it is, I, I can do both. <laughs> I just want you, I'm an all-purpose lawyer, you know. And, um, you know, that's, that's one quick way of getting it done. But um, So Claire, uh, in addition, I was also doing... Um, uh, representing women in, in discrimination cases against universities. I had sued the numbers of universities on the Eastern Seaboard. Um, someone once said that in order to introduce me, you should introduce me not in terms of my degrees, but the universities I sued. Um, so Claire was courageous. She, she was, the, the case was one of the best cases I had seen, partly because I also had access to the faculty. These were my friends. So I could hear, I knew what was going on in the tenure discussions in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Claire's record was by, by dimensions more than the men. And it was a classic case where her record was scrutinized more carefully than the men's records had been scrutinized. In other words, someone at Harvard had done, had literally checked the footnotes of her papers in a way that the men had not been scrutinized. So it was a classic uh, kind of situation where you know, the, the scrutiny alone sort of bespoke something more than just the ordinary, um, ordinary review. Uh, the case went before the Cambridge Commission on the Status of Women. They, had, they found probable cause. And then there is a classic, I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. The um, representing, the general counsel at Harvard was Margie Marshall. Representing Harvard was Joan Lukey. At the 11th hour, we decided we would try to settle the case. And so there was a negotiation with Joan Lukey and me, Claire Dalton, Margie on the phone. And it was really a classic women's negotiation in a way. You know, you postured just a tad at the beginning. Then sometime around midday, you essentially had a cut-the-crap discussion. <laughs> you know, let's just talk. And the case settled for uh, a quarter of a million dollars, which Harvard was going to pay to to Northeastern to start a program on domestic violence, which was a program that Claire was very interested in. But that was representing me. I mean, we were, the things that we were saying, the things that she was going through were the things that I anticipated going through. The year before Claire was denied tenure, Susan Estrich and Martha Minow got tenure. The standards had changed. And so uh, Martha and I have talked about this, and so there's a certain irony to my being welcomed at Harvard Law School, but that's really an indication of how much the place has changed. Or me, maybe I've changed. I don't know. <laughs> nah, I don't I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to open it up to questions that you had for Judge Gertner. Beth. Well, wait one second. The, um, the, yes, actually, let us... Um, we have two WBA interns who are going to give... 
oops, these mics too. This is so spontaneous. Oh, okay, <laughs> hello, hello, now we're here. Okay, this has nothing to do with the law, per se, um, but because you are so insightful on this issue, I have been having many, many conversations with my husband about the rash of public officials behaving badly, okay? And, okay? Allegedly. And the X-chromosomally challenged <laughs> nature of the perpetrators in these. And, you know, there's been a lot of articles that I saw in the New York Times this week and probably one of the more insightful pieces talking about why we don't see that in our women officials versus men. And it goes back to what you were talking about, you know, the work really defining us. And one of the, the theories that I thought was probably the more salient was, you know, we see our jobs, whether we're going into public service or whether it's judge or lawyer, as being um, something to, to get something done you know, to, to make change as about as opposed to being about us. And I guess it's a roundabout way of saying is, you know, um, is there any way in which you feel comfortable in, uh, in terms of, because of, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this issue, that you have observed this and you've thought about it. And, you know, the differences between how the different genders, you know, approach our duties that might help us understand this phenomenon that we're seeing. I don't know. It might yeah, be too loaded I, a question. No, no, I don't, I'm not uh, really. I, I'm going to leave the bench in September. By the time they gin up to get me in trouble for anything <laughs> I say tonight, I'll be gone. So um, I, I think, I mean, the, the article was talking about how women get into positions of power for the purpose of doing something. Men get into positions of power for the purpose of being powerful. And I wonder sometimes if it's also that the road that we take to get into power makes you not feel entitled when you're there. In other words, it has taken a long time to get there. Let me, for example, young women. Some people say, what's the discrimination today? And young women, there's a difference between young women lawyers and young male lawyers. A young male lawyer can still be presumed to be a lawyer even when he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he's big, he's in a suit, he has a deep voice, and he can sound the part. A young woman who's starting out still has to prove her entitlement to the position. It is easier than when we started out, for sure, because there are models uh, with high-pitched voices and, you know, long hair. But still, you, you, you get to these positions understanding the fragility of the perch. I don't think that men do. I, I think that that's really part of it. I don't think that any of them understood uh, uh, that, they don't, that this is not an entitlement. Whereas I think that all the women in power understand that this is not an entitlement. So I, I think that that's, that that's part of it. Now, maybe the implication of that is in 20 years when we're all running the world, you'll start seeing that. But I actually tend to doubt that uh, as well. I think that women just have a different relationship to um, phone sex. <laughs> I can't put it any other way. <laughs> like baffled, um, totally and completely baffled, you know. Andrea. I really don't want to follow that, but, um, <laughs> okay, um, thank you both very much. Um, so my question to you, Judge Gertner, is, um, if you would, what was the story you didn't put in the book? Uh, oh, I, um, there really wasn't, first, there's nothing in the book, there's no case in the book that I lost. <laughs> <laughs> my book I can do whatever I want. <laughs> there were also stories that I actually didn't, you know, there were, there were trial stories that were actually fun for me that I didn't want, that I couldn't put in the book because there just wasn't room that didn't have any woman's issue in it at all, but were just fun uh, trial stories. So that was, uh, you know, because I had quite a run. Um, people ask me sometimes whether when I leave the bench I'm going to want to practice again, and um, I, I think about, you know, leaving all professions when you're at the top, <laughs> and I'm not sure I want to go back to that. But it was mostly trial stories that were pure, you know, the, um, well, actually, this is one that's sort of mentioned in the book, which is sort of funny. It shows you how I was weaving my career and my dating. This was before John together. So I, so there was a, st there was a case in the Jordan Marsh men's room. <laughs> Jordan Marsh men's room. This is in the book. 
Uh, and in the Jordan Marsh men's room, two men who were together in a stall got picked up by a cop for doing nasty things in the stall. And one of the men came to see me, and I... What, uh, oh, the book is really about so many times when I just was reaching for something out of the ordinary in a case. So in this case, I wanted to see whether the police, when they entered into the men's room, could see four legs under the stall, or whether they had to stick their head under the stall in order to see who's there. If they have to stick their head under the stall, it is a search, right? You're in the toilet, you should have privacy. So that required uh, visiting the Jordan Marsh men's room, which is a little difficult. Happened that I was dating an architect who was really just totally in love with me. So I asked him as a favor to me (laughs) to please go to the Jordan Marsh men's room and do a mock-up. You know, you're an architect. Do a (laughs) mock-up of the room, you know, the stall, the height of the stall, the place underneath. We'd find out the height of the police officer, where his eyes would be. And, uh, and this young man uh, had to go into the Jordan Marsh men's room, sit on the pot with a plumb line, doing, uh, <laughs> you know, and every time the door opened, he had to go back because he was petrified, sure that he was going to be arrested. Um, but finally, he does a mock-up of the Jordan Marsh men's room. It is clear that the police officer walked in and you could not see under the stall, that he had to stick his hand under the stall, therefore a Fourth Amendment violation. It was, you know, uh, I enlist all of my boyfriends to do <laughs> things like this. So the, the model with John was not an unusual model. I had done this before. The end of the story is not so great because when we walked into the Boston Municipal Court and I was ready with my charts and whatever, my client asked who was sitting in the front row, and it was the Boston Globe, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead guilty. I do not want to have my name in the paper. The P.S. of this now is that 20 years later, he's probably required to be on a sex offender registry uh, for this. The, the book sometimes tells stories on both those levels, by the way, some wacky trial story, and then trying to step back and say, boy, this is troubling. Boy, I'm not so sure about this. Um, so that's something I, I didn't tell some of those stories in detail. That's what um, there, there had been models of male lawyers who had written books. And for the most part, they were, and then I won this case, and then I won this case, and then I won this case. I didn't want to do that. Uh, there's a little bit of that in it, but I didn't want to do that. What I mostly wanted to do was, let me tell you about what it was like to be a woman lawyer in the 70s and 80s to be trying to deal with the craft at the same time as this noise was all around you about whether or not you really belonged in the profession at all. I I just also want to say what's fun about this is that um, for people who are starting out, I lost every case I touched that first year. I lost everything. I lost continuances. (laughs) You gotta go a ways to lose a continuous. But I lost everything and the the only thing that kept me going was the sense really that I couldn't admit that I had failed. That if I dropped out, um, everyone would believe that women can't be criminal defense lawyers and so I I stayed in um, under the circumstances. So, any other questions? Yeah, (laughs) Brianna. Hello. Um, You're on. Um, going back to the comparing you to Lorena Bobbitt comment, um, something that I think would be helpful to hear for you know younger female attorneys out there that I think is still fairly prevalent is the terminology used to describe women attorneys versus men attorneys. I actually had a woman in my office, a partner, say to me that she was told by another man in our office that oh, you know, this happened because she was too trusting. How do we deal with, or, you know, being a bitch as opposed to aggressive? How do we, you know, any woman lawyer now, deal with those ideals? I mean, should we try and change it? Should we just try and embrace who we are? What are your thoughts and advice on on dealing with that? Because I think it's so fairly prevalent. I want to split your question in two. 
there are the things that women are and women do which are good and should be celebrated. So when I describe the interaction around the Claire Dalton case, I mean, that was, you know, we all realized when we were posturing and we understood when posturing had to stop. Um, uh, I, they're, they're, we are, the lawyer that you are reflects your background. And so it's not, or the judge that I am reflects my background. So it's not surprising that I have a different context for my decisions. It's not surprising that I walk into court and I can tell that the person in the back who's crying is probably related to one of the parties in the case, and I hear it and I feel it. Um, I don't know whether that's a woman that's genetic or whether that's just the way we were raised, you know, um, but we were raised that way. Does it affect my brain? No, it doesn't affect my brain. Does it affect, you know, my judging? Well, perhaps, but I'm not sure in a bad way. So that stuff is, I think we, we, we are different because our experiences are different, but the differences are part of what make us different lawyers and part of what make, we're, we're the same and different at the same time. You know, I'm writing a decision now in my chambers that is as good as anybody else is going to write, and it has nothing to do with my hormones. Um, the, the, the other side of the coin, though, is the work-family issue. And that's, we, we've talked about this before, that continues to be terribly, terribly troubling, which is that there's a generation of women and men who believe that the women's movement was only about choice. That women's movement was about choice, so that Pam Berman and Nancy Gertner can be lawyers. It was about, so you could choose to do that. And that's it. And it, choice was terribly important, because when I was starting off, you know, there were no women in these positions, so choosing to be them was terribly important. But it was never only about choice. It was about equality. And if uh, choosing to work in a firm or choosing to be a lawyer or choosing to be a judge means not having a family, then we have done something wrong. And the, the, we've, we've talked about this before, women in the firms who feel um, squeezed out and then say, the hell with it, I'm going to be at home with my kids. That's not a choice. Nobody, there wasn't a choice at the firm to squeeze, you know, to, to make the firms not family-friendly. And it isn't a choice at home where the only ones who are doing this, or for the most part, the people doing this are women. I don't regard that as a choice. I, th I thought we were about making all the roles available to, to all of us. So insofar as there are stereotypes about women and mothering, that's a different, that's a different situation. There was an article in the New York Times this weekend. I, I look over at Pam because Pam is my op-ed partner. We... We, we scream at one another through the emails about various articles. This was an article about how terrible it is that women are going into medicine in large numbers and going half-time so that they can be with their family. And there was literally a line in the article that said that women have to be careful about this because they're taking up space that a man would, be, would have. I cannot believe that I'm hearing that again. Now, part of it, it's very much like the women lawyer discussion, which is if the, if the workplace is not family friendly, that's the nature of the problem. It shouldn't be a private choice to choose work or home. I mean, it should be something that the work, that the employment setting supports, that the government supports. Um, it should be a different, that just shouldn't be the, the choice. But so stereotypes about mothering are really a different issue entirely because we are all different. You know, we're all different mothers. Um, I mean, I happen not to mind to do closing arguments with baby vomit on my shoulder. You know, you had to get past it, and then you could do that. So, uh, any other questions? Yes. Right here. Uh, <laughs> As a female judge in the federal district court, how do you deal with the egos of the male judges? <laughs> uh. Well, you know, this is probably one of the few positions in which, um, I mean, we really are all equals. Uh, the judge next to me can pontificate about whatever he wants, but I don't have to listen. It's, we're not a collegial decision-making body. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's the answer. And then also, uh, you deal with egos. 
you know, the way we all deal with egos. You look at one another. There are, there are glances that are often shot across the room from me to Saris to Zobel after an interesting performance. But, but it, doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really affect me. This is different than any other position. Uh, you are genuinely an equal player. I certainly had, at the beginning, uh, I had issues with some of the male lawyers in front of me, typically out-of-town lawyers who didn't know, any, didn't know that I actually had a reputation and a trial practice, who would come in, and I love it, they would speak loudly. You know, you speak, loud, you speak loudly when you, when you don't think the person can understand, you know, someone's speaking another language, and you start yelling at them as if that's going to make a difference. That's what they would do, sort of speak very loudly. And I had a sense of what was going on there, which was, you know, who the heck is she? Um, but they lost. <laughs> you know, I knew what was... Who had the power? So they lost. It was a case about cars. What did they expect? <laughs> no. hmm. Any other questions? Yeah. Hi. Uh, my question is on the work-life balance with mothering. And I have three children. I've always struggled with that. And, and two comments that I have influenced me tremendously is one by Judith Richards Hope, who said that, her daughter always chastised her and felt that she was missing something, that she didn't have the mom that was there that made cookies and did all the activities. And on the other side was Kate Hudson, who actually said that she loved growing up, that she knew she was not the center of her parents' universe, that she was loved and cared for, but wasn't the end-all, be-all. And I was wondering what tips you had to, to, to try to find that balance and what your experiences were. You know, I think a lot of that is the community you're in. Um, we live in Brookline. When, I, uh, when my youngest son was in uh, fancy daycare, um, uh, they would have family meetings at 2 in the afternoon. You know, and I, I, I was getting more and more angry about this, but I was the only woman who worked in that fancy daycare. When we moved to Brookline, there were meetings at 8 in the morning, um, which was a recognition that everybody worked. And it was actually quite funny. You know, the first meeting in the first grade, I stayed up all night, baked cookies. And, and there, were, there were lots of cookies and, I mean, incredible, you know, pastries. In the second grade, there were still incredible pastries. By the third grade, there was a pile of donut holes and bagels. <laughs> Been there, done that. My kids didn't have other... Everybody worked in the neighborhood. So they, there was none of this, how come you're not doing what Johnny's mommy is doing? We were all in the same category. It gets to the point about the community here. It, it is the kinds of choices you can make about work and family depends upon the community that you're in, the kind of support that it gives you, the kind of values that it represents. It's not only, you know, you're a pod with your husband uh, and he can support you or not, but it really is the, the larger community. And until we change the communities we're in, uh, everyone is going to have to deal with that. Yes, Lauren. Yes, go. So I have to answer that question for you because this is what Nancy should have said. Oh, my. <laughs> I remember being a young influent, being a young lawyer. You're not that much older than me, but you, by reputation, you certainly were very important to me when I was a younger lawyer. And I was at some event, and there you were in the side of the room somewhere, and you were on the phone, and you were talking to your kids. And I'm thinking, that's Nancy Gardner talking to her kids. <laughs> and you were having the most loving, wonderful conversation with your kids in the middle of whatever else was going on. And the bottom line is, it's very clear, and now that I've had the privilege of knowing you as a friend for so many years, you are a loving, present parent. And Judith Richard Hope's daughter in her book was saying, you are not a loving, present parent. And that's the difference. And it doesn't matter whether you're working or not. No, that's true. I mean, my, you know, I love to tell, it's not in the book, but I, I do a fair amount of traveling. And once we had cell phones, the kids knew that they could call me anywhere. And I, my favorite was in the middle of a, a presentation on women's rights in Beijing. My phone rings, and Peter can't find his soccer shoes. And the worst thing of all is that I know 
just where they are. (laughs) And so he knows that I know, and he knows that he could call. It's a little crazy, but, you know. There are other techniques I can, any of you want to know about that I can share with you, hacking into their email. Did I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, having his, uh, their checking account keyed to mine so that if I don't hear from him or either of them for, for weeks, I can look online and know that they're alive based on <laughs> what they've just spent. There are things that one can do even in these, you know, even as a working mom. There's no question about it. Yeah. Have the mic. <laughs> We've seen in recent judicial appointments that women seem to be scrutinized because of their life experiences, as if in some way men are not impacted by their life experiences, only women. Did you experience that in your confirmation process, or have you, have you seen it in, in the, the federal bench? And we've seen it, obviously, here with the, with the state appointments. I had the weirdest confirmation process. So my, I, didn't, I wasn't scrutinized in that way because Ted Kennedy put on my vote put on the vote for me between the NAFTA vote and the Thanksgiving recess. Um, The notion was that we wanted as little questioning of Gertner as we could. Um, uh, So I didn't didn't have that explicitly. I'm shocked at women fleeing from their womanness. Um, Because being a judge, you know, the, the notion that being a judge is like a computer is absurd. Credibility determinations are about, do you think that it's reasonable for this person to have said what they said? That's all about life experience. Um, I was at a conversation once with other judges where someone said, well, the damages were only $5,000. That's de minimis. Well, I was poor growing up. $5,000 is not de minimis. So what you bring to the table, precisely because the job is not an automatic job, it's not robotic, you bring to the table the context. You struggle with that context. You don't, you know, you, your decisions don't reflect your class any more than they reflect your gender. But you know about your experiences and you struggle with them. I, I mean, I, we ought to say that out loud, but um, but we don't. I mean, the confirmation process is another is another story altogether. It doesn't matter in the sense that women are being selected now, but they're being selected without engaging in this kind of discussion. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> How did we get to the point that empathy is a bad thing? You know, it, the judges are too empathetic. I mean, it, it's it a, just it's doesn't make any sense. Well, I, it's actually something I... This is, this is my next book. But I have to be off the bench to write this one. I... Um, I, I really do want to write about how we have homogenized judging. The image of a judge is a homogenous, antiseptic image, which is simply not what you really want. Um, I wrote an article in The Globe a couple of weeks ago in which I described this, this sort of idiosyncratic story, right? A, a guy is in a trial um, before another judge. He claims that a saw chopped off his fingers. He, go, he wins a fair amount of money before jury, goes up before the Court of Appeals. It's reversed. It comes to me. In between, the man has died. His lawyer was supposed to file a suggestion of death and substitute the estate. The lawyer screws up and does it late. My law clerk comes in and says, Judge, you know, you can clean up this case. He missed the deadline. You can dismiss it. And every pressure is to dismiss it. You don't get your name in the paper. You don't get criticized, you don't get appealed. That's great. And then he said to me, but, you can dismiss it. Then he looked up and he said, but justice in the world suggests you don't. (laughs) You had the discretion to do it or not. And if if humanity is on one side, what's wrong with that? And to exercise your humanity with respect to that. And there are so many decisions like that where I'll hear other judges saying, I have no choice but to dismiss the case. It's just not true. It's not true. It's the questions you ask. It's just not true, or usually not true. I'd like to have that discussion. There's another discussion about how the activist debate has silenced the bench, federal and state. And that's another. That's book two. And we're going to take you up on our standing invitation to uh, come back and talk about that. But in recognition of the people who are working and the time here, 
I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to sign books over here. I did want to say, actually, I missed before, a huge thank you to Pam Berman, who actually spent tons of time preparing for this and organizing it. Um, It's very exciting, Pam, and her, um, her determination got this on the webcast, and I don't know if we have a podcast that you can watch again after, but... We'll have a tape afterwards. I'm not sure whether it'll be accessible through the WBA, but if you email me afterwards, we'll figure out a way to get access to it. But this is very exciting. So Pam's determination, we have now moved into <laughs> the modern era, and people can participate in the WBA even when they're not here. So thank you, Pam. And thank you, Judge Gertner, for tonight and for everything. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.